Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Put uh, my testimony up online, and I haven't done that. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to do it. Uh, it's kind of difficult for me to give my testimony because I've been through so many things in my life, being a missionary kid and a pastor's kid and uh, living overseas and going to school overseas and traveling all over the world here and there. But uh, I'll try to give you a bit of a truncated version of what the Lord has done for me because it's pretty unreal what the Lord has done in my life. Now, when I was younger, somebody gave me a set of verses that they believe the Lord had showed them that though this passage that they gave me is actually about Jesus Christ, they believed it somehow would pertain to my life. And at the time, I didn't understand it at all. But when I looked back many years later, it really did, in some ways, spell out aspects of my life. So apparently, the Lord wanted to relate this passage to what I was going to do in my life and what my character should be like. The passage was in Isaiah 49, 1 through 4. It says, to, says this, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he made me. He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He's also made me a secret, a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me, due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Well, after I tell you a little bit about my life, you're going to be able to see that there are some elements of this passage that certainly came to pass in my life. Well, I grew up, uh, I was born in Indiana in 1952 and spent uh, 10 years there. Uh, the son of my dad, who was a Congregationalist pastor, evangelist, and, you know, I look back now, and of course, I'm very thankful that I was brought up in a Christian family. Now, I remember uh, giving my life to the Lord. Uh, back in those days, they used to have uh, evangelists that would come to your church, and they would draw chalk, uh, they, would, they would draw on a chalkboard or, or, or whatever piece of paper. and. Uh, they would tell the gospel why they were doing it. But meanwhile, they would, uh, without anyone knowing it, they would draw some things on there in uh, blacklight chalk. And at a certain point, he would turn up on the blacklight. And of course, it was like the cross and things like that showing up. Something really got to me that day. And I, 
I gave my life to the Lord. And later, before we left for the mission field, I was baptized when I was 10 years old by my father. Well, I was in our house and I overheard them talking about going out to the mission field. And I heard them say China. I didn't realize they were saying it was close to China. Well, uh, I went to school and I told everybody I was going to China. <laughs> and of course, you know, <laughs> being from the Midwest, they're pretty amazed. But then I found out I wasn't actually going to China. We were going to a place called Micronesia. Uh, my parents were led by the Lord to go uh, to Micronesia without even having, knowing if there were any missions, real biblical missions working in the area. Well, back in the 50s is when the Congregationalists, who were a good biblical organization, they split. And they split over the issue of Sola Scriptura. And they split into two factions. One was the UCC, United Church of Christ, and the other was the Four Seas. And the Four Seas is what my father was involved in. And he, he went to the convention and argued for, you know, believing that the Bible is inerrant and, you know, is, you know, is uh, good for everything in the Christian life. And yet they rejected that. So you can see even way back then, they would, you know, that was a dividing issue. Just one of the core doctrines. Well, um, we continued on in the church, uh, this little church in Indiana. And a man came to our church to visit, and uh, they were talking to him about wanting to go to Micronesia. And he said, well, there is a, an organization other than the UCC that's working out there, and the name is Liebenzell Mission. It's a German mission. And so my parents were asking him, do you have any idea how we can get a hold of them? And they said, no, you know, uh, I don't. I, and then he said, wait a minute. I remember I got lost in New Jersey <laughs> up on a hill. And I remember the name of the hill because it was kind of unusual. It was called Schoolies Mountain. And I remember seeing a sign that pointed off to the right that said Liebenzell Mission. <laughs> so my parents wrote a letter to Liebenzell Mission, Schoolies Mountain. And it actually got through. <laughs> I know that was the Lord. Uh, and they were very happy to accept my parents into the mission, even though they were pre predominantly German. Well, before leaving, my father had a massive heart attack. I was at home that, that day. And it really pretty much scared me called my mom, they called the hospital, took him away. He had to drive all the way into Indianapolis, which is quite a ways away. And they told him after they examined him and you know that he would no longer be able to be in ministry. His heart was too weak. Well, 
we all got together in the church and it was my first prayer meeting that I was involved in. And I remember being in that room with all the people, everybody praying for my dad. And I just remember thinking, you know what? The Holy Spirit is here. And just believing that the Lord could heal my dad. Well, guess what? Within days, he was out of the hospital and he was cleared to go out to Micronesia to be a, a missionary. Pretty amazing. So we left and we went up to the mission in New Jersey and then we flew out to Micronesia uh, on Pan Am. That was the only airline at the time. This was 1962. And we flew through a typhoon by the name of Karen, which later was recognized to be the one of the worst typhoons to ever hit Guam. Well, we flew through the edge of that thing and the pl plane suddenly dropped about a hundred feet all in one second. <laughs> it was like one of those pl plane rides you go on to to get zero gravity. <laughs> and these poor stewardess were, they were serving the meal at the time and the plates all went right up to the roof and they were just kind of sticking up at the roof <laughs> and they came crashing down. And of course my mom was holding barf bags for my sister and I. <laughs> Uh, well, we finally got to Guam, a little green, getting off the plane. And my dad had uh, uh, reserved plane tickets. They actually had a, a float plane that flew down to Palau. But this old German missionary up there, they canceled our tickets. <laughs> so telling my father that missionaries don't fly on planes. <laughs> They have to go down there by ship. <laughs> uh, so that's what we ended up having to do, go down, go down to Palau on a pretty small ship. And unfortunately, we also went through the edge of the typhoon on the ship. And there were at least 30 foot swells. And literally everybody on that whole ship was throwing up over the railing, including the captain, I watched him come out of his cabin and throw up over the railing. <laughs> of course, for me, I'm a 10 year old boy and the whole thing was like one big long <laughs> carnival ride to me. I was very happy about the whole thing, <laughs> but nobody else was. Well, we had to eat in the mess hall and uh, our first meal was fish head soup. <laughs> and of course coming from Mid, the Midwest, we had no idea about that kind of stuff at all. Uh, but uh, so we were down there in this little tiny room. I mean, this thing was not a, a passenger liner at all. It was a freighter. So we were in this little tiny dining area. And uh, there was also, there were also a couple of nuns that were eating with us. And so my father, as was his usual, <laughs> Uh, tradition said, let us pray. <laughs> and these nuns were like, like oh no. <laughs> and so as he's praying, I opened my eyes, you know, and kind of spied and looked at them to see what they were doing. And they sat there and they adjusted their neck thing and their button 
and then each sleeve <laughs> to try to act like like you know they weren't actually doing the sign of the cross. <laughs> I found that to be very amusing. Well, we finally got to Palau and we got on a 45 foot diesel boat. And I sat up on the prow looking down at the most spectacular thing I had ever seen in my life. The beautiful coral reefs was crystal clear water and fish and all this stuff. I mean, it was like I went to another planet. Well, when we got to the beach where, uh, where there's a girl's school that my parents were going to be teaching at, I jumped off the boat and my first Palauan friend ran out of the bushes and shouted, hello, <laughs> and then ran off. <laughs> he was going to be my first friend. At that time, um, they didn't speak much English at all. There was not, not hardly any English being taught in the schools. That's not the way it is today. But because of that, my sister and I learned the Palauan language fluently within a very short period of time, like six months. And of course, my mother and father really hurried to try to catch up with us because we could sit there <laughs> and say things <laughs> right in front of them that they couldn't understand. <laughs> Little brats that we were. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just, when I look back on it, it's the most amazing thing. Here's a 10-year-old boy running around barefoot, spearfishing and fishing and trapping and learning all these things, you know, how to make things and all this. It was like a paradise for me. Well, my parents had to administrate and teach at a girl's school. And the schools in Palau and on Guam were way behind American schools. So having started out school in the U.S., we were homeschooled. And at that time, there were only two curriculums for homeschooling. One of them was called Calvert Course. And uh, it was a good one. Uh, it kind of it made us read the classics. And so I, I got to do that. But my mother just couldn't keep up with homeschooling both of us, my sister and I. So they decided that they were going to send me off to a missionary kid boarding school in the Philippines. So uh, when we were leaving, we went to Guam and we had to get a special clearance by the Philippine consulate in Guam for me to be act actually able to ride the plane by myself because my parents could not afford to take me there. So I got on the plane with my papers and everything, everything was in order. But when I arrived in the Philippines, all of a sudden they arrested me <laughs> and took me away <laughs> to a room <laughs> where I had all these guards in there. And uh, my dorm parent was not there to pick me up. So it looked very suspicious. And one of the guards said to me, you know, there's a tax. How much money do you have? <laughs> Well, I'm 10 years old, okay? I didn't know any better. I was actually 12 years old. It's 12 years old. I didn't know any better. And they had given me a $20 bill and I'd put it in my pocket. So 
I said, well, this is all I have, $20. And the guy said, oh, that's exactly what it is. So he took the $20 and he stuck it in his front pocket. <laughs> I learned my lesson pretty quick at that point. Well, they finally came to pick me up and, you know, I was petrified. But I had to spend the first two weeks of school driving with them down to Manila every day to a courtroom to adjudicate my case, which was ridiculous. So anyway, I went to school at a school called Faith Academy in the Philippines from eighth to 10th grade. And in 10th grade, I was in the middle of a uh, uh, testing period. The school got a telegram from someone in my mission who wanted to visit me at the school. And it said some things that we couldn't really understand in the telegram. So I had to wait for two weeks for this person to arrive. And when they did, they pulled me out of my midterms to the office and the mission lady told, my, told me my father was out in a boat delivering supplies to the school and a storm came up and he was lost at sea and they found the boat, but they never found his body. Obviously, this was absolutely devastating to me. This set me off on a depression that lasted for a number of years. And anyone who's lost a parent like that, where you know they they're lost and you, they didn't you know don't know where they are, I had dreams of them finding my father all the time. But you know he was only forty when he was lost at sea. My, my mother talks about it in her book and how the Lord actually showed her before we even went out there that he was not going to come back to the mainland. And it was true. Well, at the end of that school year, the administration of the school neglected to get me a ticket home to Palau. And no more were available. So they were scrambling to try to figure out what to do with me. I was the last person left in the dormitory. And they uh, decided that I should go back to the mainland with my dorm parent and stay with some friends of theirs uh, for the summer in San Diego. Uh, this was pretty uh, difficult for me because I really wanted to be able to go back and, you know, <laughs> basically talk to people about my dad and find out what went on. But I spent the summer with people I didn't know. I actually was uh, uh, a, uh, I was a golf caddy at uh, Torrey Pines because <laughs> we were right down below Torrey Pines and uh, learned a lot about golf when I did that, but also learned to surf there. But anyway, finally, my mother came because they were due for furlough and she came there with my sister. And then we drove down to Amarillo, Texas, where I was to stay for a year, going to school there and living with my uncle. So I went to the school and the school consisted of 10th through 12th grades. Now at Faith Academy, we only had 400 people in the whole school. So I knew everybody. At this school, there were 2,800 people. <laughs> it 
it was reverse culture shock for me, needless to say. Well, I had started writing songs back in 1968. My first guitar was an old guitar that was left over in a storage building uh, in Palau. And I actually took fishing line and made strings for it and learned how to play it. My sister and I were then at the end of that year, school year, we were able to go back to faith for my senior year. And uh, I was very thankful that we were able to do that. And I could tell you some other stories, but I'll leave that out. But it was a hard year for me as I also had an abusive dorm parent who later was kicked out of the school for misconduct. I'm thankful to this day for a few of the teachers at the school who saw through that guy and they helped me. One of them was my science teacher and I was campused at the time for, for nothing that I did, but stuff other people were doing. And he came, he drove all the way up to the dorm from Manila, which was ours. And he came up there and pulled me out of the dorm. He said, you know what? We know about this guy and you know, we're behind you, don't despair. That really helped me out a lot because I was actually quite suicidal at the time. Well, I tried out for and was selected for a special choir group because of being a solo artist and the songs that I composed. And we actually made a record uh, when I was 16 years old with one of my original songs. And we uh, toured with that group, toured the West Coast. Well, I hadn't heard from colleges that I applied to from the Philippines because mail was so slow. So I ended up in a school in Oregon that we sang at and they were willing to accept me. So I spent two years there uh, taking Bible courses, music and drama. I took all the drama courses they, you know, they had because at the time, foolishly, <laughs> I thought I was gonna be an actor. Well, um, at that point, I heard that there was an ex-Broadway actor who was teaching drama out at the University of Guam. So I thought, well, you know, I can be close to Palau and be out there in the islands. So I changed schools and went there. And, uh, you know, I went to school and I, I held many jobs, but unfortunately I got involved with the wrong people. I got involved in drugs. In fact, some of my friends were the biggest drug dealers on Guam. I also got involved with a music group called Sea Dog. And it was with some ex Warner Brothers executives. Uh, and they were planning on doing a record with me. Uh, but during that time, I began to suspect that they were into the occult. I'll just tell you a, a few of the things that happened to me to kind of prove that point. One of them was I uh, had wrecked my car trying to get away from some guys I bought drugs from who were waiting for me to come home and they were standing there with these huge rocks and they tried to kill me. So I tried to run them down and ran over a, a, a little uh, 
15 foot embankment and got knocked out. When I came to, they're climbing down the embankment to finish me off. Well, for some reason, I looked up and there was a Catholic church there. And I thought, you know what? I bet these guys are Catholics. And if I run into that church, they're not going to be able to come in. Sure enough, I was right. And I'm sure the Lord put that in my head. But uh, I didn't have a car. And we had practices and stuff. And they said, they told me, you know, if you ever need for us to pick you up, just whistle this certain way and we'll hear you and we'll come and pick you up. Well, I thought that's, that's nuts. You know, that's crazy. But one day I was kind of hurting to, to find a way to get down there. And so I said, oh, I'll give it a try. So I whistled that way. And literally within minutes, they were at my door and they said, we heard you. And we're taking you down there. <sighs> Later, when we started doing some major concerts there, one of them I remember was at a theater with about more than a thousand people there. Um, we were pretty popular. But I noticed that whenever one of the lead singers in the band, whenever his wife was there, there were weird stuff going on in the concerts. There were extra, it sounded like extra musical instruments and extra voices in our concert. And it wasn't just me. I talked to people that were down in the audience. They went, yeah, sounded like you guys were like a five, you know, you had five pieces, you know. Um, started freaking me out. And then consequently, I found out that she really was a witch and she had control over all these people down where they lived. Well, uh, one day I had gotten stoned and I woke up and I was laying by the side of the road in Guam. And these cars are all driving by me, probably looking at me thinking, who is this dirty hippie with long hair? Uh, <laughs> you know, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I sat there and I just thought to myself, you know, I have pretty much alienated everybody who cared about me. I didn't know at the time that my sister and my mother were both praying for me. And they hadn't given up on me, even though I was acting like an idiot right there, you know, where they were doing ministry. It was horrible, guys. Well, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, basically feeling sorry for myself, thinking nobody cares about me at all. And that's when the Lord brought an old song to my mind. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. I still kind of get choked up when I think about that. Because it was such a simple thing. And yet the Lord really used it. He's like saying, I love you. I care about you. I didn't think he cared about me at all because I didn't care about him. 
I had long since given up on the idea that God even existed. I was way far off, folks. I was a lamb that had wandered really far away. But I said, I came to realize that the only way I was going to get out of this whole situation was to physically leave Guam. I couldn't just renounce it. I had to get out of there. Well, man, they put everything in my path you can imagine to try to entice me to stay. They actually brought like 30 people to the airport when I was leaving. And they're all standing there trying to get me to stay. But you know what? It was a struggle. But I finally was able to get on that plane. And the minute I got on that plane, sat down on my step, my seat, and they closed the doors, it was like this great weight lifted off of me. And I was free. I couldn't believe it. The Lord saved me, literally. But you know, I had done so many drugs. One time I took LSD for a week straight every day. I was taking mescaline, a lot of other drugs. And I was in a haze and I could barely talk. Uh, and, you know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't hardly put two words together. And if you ask people in Palau, what I was like when I came back there to sort of uh, taper off, uh, they'll tell you that. I couldn't sing, I couldn't speak. I certainly could not get up and speak before people because I would forget what I was saying. And then I remember the verse that they gave me, but I said, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Well, I realized that even though I'd given my life back to the Lord, you know that, that I might have to suffer the consequences of my foolish drug use and subsequent diminished drink, brain capacity for the rest of my life. And I accepted that. It was my fault. Couldn't blame anybody else for that. But you know what? The Lord did another miracle for me. And I wrote a song called Jesus Did a Miracle in Me. Because over the next few years, he completely cleared my mind up and healed my mind so that I could think clearly. I could speak clearly. After all, he had said in that verse, he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. So um, I went back to the U.S., back to Oregon, and I began to record music. And I was asked to start a commercial jingle corporation. So I began producing albums and producing commercials for myself and others at, a local, at local recording studios in Portland. And I started a group called Paralandra. And we were one of the first groups to write and perform Christian hard rock music at high schools and colleges. The churches did not like what we were doing. They would not back us up. But I kept telling them, hey, we're not 
doing church music, we're out there at the high schools and colleges and we're planting seeds. We're, we're preaching the gospel. Well, anyway, we all lived together in a big house in Newburgh, Oregon. And years later, I had left some of my stuff stored in that house. So I asked one of the guys who owned the house if I could have a yard sale. And he said, yeah. And so I was on my way upstairs to check on what I left there. When down the stair staircase came the most beautiful creature I could imagine. <laughs> this is when I tell people that I picked my wife up at a yard sale. <laughs> Well, she came down, she hopped on a motorcycle in her garage and proceeded to do a wheelie all the way down the road. And I went, that's the one for me. <laughs> that sealed the deal. Well, I spent 15 years there in Oregon, writing, arranging, producing, and performing hundreds of local, regional, and national commercials and film scores for companies such as Dairy Queen, Nike, Airstream, and many others. We uh, also produced records and we had Christian records on Sparrow and Meadowlark and also distributed by Capitol Records. We got many Christian music awards from uh, Cornerstone Magazine, Campus Crusade Magazine, and we were asked to go on tour with a number of well-known uh, well CCM article, uh, artists. But both of us had little kids at the time. And he, he, you know, we really, neither of us felt like it was a good idea to go on tour and leave our little families at home. At that time, the Lord had already put it on my heart to someday return to Micronesia to do mission work. So then... Our former, my former mission asked me to go to Guam to administrate their guest house. And so I was really happy to do it. Now our second child had just recently been born and we went to Guam in 1989. She was like two weeks old or something, very young. So I began to not only work on Guam but also tour through Micronesia doing evangelistic concerts. And my goal was basically to confess what I had done in Guam in front of everyone who knew my family. I wanted to do it because so many of the kids out there were dealing with the same kind of issues that I had to deal with. And I could understand their pain quite well. And so I wanted them to know that with the Lord's help, I was able to get out of it and have, you know, a victory over it. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life, which you were called, and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to confess. I screwed up, man. I'm embarrassed of what I did to my mother and to other people in the mission, being a very bad example. Well, I did have many witnesses and I saw lives change. Just one example, I was on the island of Yap and uh, did an evangelistic concert there. And that night, this old guy stumbled forward 
and he came and he wanted to give his life to Christ. I found out afterwards he was the town drunk. On Guam, I had met, I had happened to meet a few of my former drug partners. And of course, they couldn't believe I was a missionary. I told them I'm a missionary. Oh, really? Yeah, right. But it gave me the opportunity to witness to them. Many people have come to the Lord since then that I thought would never do so. And I remember how we used to pray for Rose's uh, brother and father, for instance, both of whom eventually gave their lives to Christ. Well, it was in the mid-1990s that the Lord all of a sudden threw me in the middle of a situation and started me into an area I never thought I'd be involved with, apologetics. A group from the Brownsville Assembly of God came and stayed at our guest house. They wanted to stay at a, at a place, and I, I opened it up for them, of course, before I knew anything about what they were doing. And they found out I was a musician, so they wanted me to be involved in their band. So I said, yeah, I can do that. Well, they came to the Guam Ministerial Association and told everybody, all the pastors there, that nothing weird was going on at the meetings, that if people were falling down, it was in repentance because of the gospel, that they weren't speaking in tongues, there was no prophecy, etc. This is what they told us. It was a ruse to get as many pastors and church workers there as they could. We got to the meeting and they were handing out uh, little labels for us to put on our shirts. Sandy Simpson, missionary, etc. After making the sign of the cross on every chair and item in the room, they started the meeting where they were doing all the things that they said they would not do. Their focus is actually on church people, not the unsaved, as they didn't even invite anyone who was unsaved. There was a bar 50 feet away and they didn't invite anybody from the bar. It was all about giving these people this, you know, slain in the spirit. Well, they taught a number of unbiblical things. They did slain in the spirit and people were laying around on the floors groaning in pain. One man who I knew was a deacon in one of the churches and he was throwing up a gelatinous substance and couldn't get up. I have to be honest with you, I thought at the time, that's probably ectoplasm. And I figured that he was demon possessed. And so I went over to the some of the Brownsville people, I said, we need to pray for this guy. He is demon possessed. And they said to me, oh, no, the Holy Spirit's all over him. Oh, really? Is that, that, that you the, what you think the Holy Spirit does? It was then I realized this was not biblical at all, but it was very dangerous. The next night, I called them up. I said, you know what? I'm not coming back. You're going to have to do without me. I don't agree with what you're doing at all. I can't be in ministry with you guys. So they went around behind my back and they invited Rose to come to the meeting without my knowing. 
They tried to slay her in the spirit, but it didn't work. But she was all mixed up about it. They, they had tried that on me 10 times. It was actually the guy, the, the guy who was slain, the, the first person who was slain in the spirit at Brownsville tried to slay me 10 times. But you know what? He couldn't do it. And why was that? Because I was praying the whole time, Lord, you know, I've had demonic involvement in my life before, and I do not want it now. And so this, if this is not from you, please protect me. And you know what? He did that. And then I found out later that anyone else who didn't get it was praying the same thing. The people who got it were praying, please give me the power dangerous prayer well i called up the local person who had brought them out to guam and i told him i was not coming back to the meetings and later on he came over to my house but i decided i didn't want him coming inside my house because i remembered the uh verse from second john 110 if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Well, I told him that he needed to stop taking people, these island people, to Pensacola because the pastors there were all making false prophecies and teaching false doctrine. And he really had no answer to that. So you know what? Subsequently, the Lord took me on a Bible study that I'll never forget. And he started to build me up so that I could answer people and help them with discernment issues. It was then that I met Jacob and also Mike Oppenheimer. And he was a big help to me. I remembered the verse, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. I began a webpage for pastors in Micronesia to help them deal with these issues. Now, sad to say, even with warnings in advance, uh, many churches there got into the third wave. But I quickly found that there were people all over the world who needed help comparing a number of things invading the churches, uh, comparing it to what the Bible teaches. So my website, this little website I started for the Micronesian Islands, just metastasized to the point where at one point I was getting one to two million hits per month. And I would answer questions from virtually every country in the world. Well, later I had to leave my former mission because some of them have, had gotten involved with some false teachers and, uh, you know, and we're working with them in one of our schools. I had warned them about him, about this guy, but they didn't listen to me. He was from Hawaii, so I knew all about him. So that's when I got involved and talked to Jacob. And he said, yeah, come, come with us. We'd be happy to have you. And that was then that I found out that, you know, Moriel is really a worldwide ministry. Well, I'm not going to go much further than that, but 
Of course, as always, I would appreciate your prayers and support as I continue this ministry, producing books, DVDs, CDs, articles, you know, doing these Zoom Bible studies. And I gather articles from all kinds of ministries, good ministries that I can find. And I link them on my site on various topic, topics impacting the churches. I'm very thankful to be doing these Zoom Bible studies with Moriel, with people joining in from all over the world via Zoom and live stream. And I want you to know I'm always available to give information to anyone, particularly pastors and Christian leadership. You know, I don't always know all the answers off the top of my head, but I can usually find them. And I've, I, I do a, a lot of email uh, answers, questions and answers. Folks, I am nothing. That the Lord could use a guy like me with all my faults is amazing to me. And so you know what? He gets all the credit for anything good that will come of what I've done or I'm doing. I'm only in, apologet in apologetics because of some college studies, but mostly an ongoing study of the Word of God for over 50 years. I often like to tell people I'm a sinner saved by grace. I have to pick up my cross daily and crucify my old self and follow the Spirit. The Lord has been gracious with me beyond my own reason. And so all I can do is thank the Lord. I thank the Lord for Moriel. I thank the Lord for you guys. My prayer goes along with what Paul said in Philippians 1, 9 through 10. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.